0: The two most important requirements for major success are First, being in the right place at the right time And second, doing something about it Ray Kroc We always look back to the golden days in our sport. Finding the beauty of semi-truck line pits with factory teams filled to the brim with riders who actually make a living just racing their bikes around the world. Somehow, there are generations of pro racers who seem to miss those eras and make us question how fast were those guys compared to today? Are they just hyped up by the time? Or are they extremely fast because of the monetary potential? Today, there is no doubt that the cycling community has doubled since its glory days. This, however, doesn't mean that the money has. The number of bike companies has broadened. The direction of media has been pulled in so many directions that companies outside of cycling don't know what will bring them returns on their sponsorships, and with no major race series to pull the majority of the talent, the racers are spread thin at so many different events. Times have changed drastically in the last decade, but opportunities always present themselves. Josh Bryceland, a former prominent competitor in the World Cup Downhill Series, has brought his crew to Cannondale and started the Cannondale Sessions. A group of riders on Cannondale's Enduro rig, The Habit, they shoot videos, have fun, and do whatever they want. No set race schedule, just talent. Riders like Seth Alvo and Brian from BKXC make livings creating great content. It's not to say that these directions are any easier than pushing for a world championship on a pro team. They have to keep tight schedules, editing, writing, and marketing themselves all at once. But, making it is making it. In the past, to get a pro license, you had to show that you get a paycheck. Anything less than that was semi-pro. This isn't the glory days of the turn of the millennium, though. I remember walking through the pits at the Sea Otter Classic in 2003. i had started racing the summer before, and it was my first pilgrimage to a massive race. I walked around the pits in awe. Felt like I was at a Supercross pit. Trek, Volkswagen, Gary Fisher Subaru, and the cool, colored, era-specific Sobi Cannondale. Brands and more brands backing different bike teams. It felt like the path to being pro actually had a payout at the end. But this influx in sponsors came from another racer, continent away, Lance Armstrong. With Lance on his winning spree in the Tour de France, the media was in a frenzy over bikes. Americans were in a frenzy over bikes. Traditional media was still king and it drove more and more average people to start following cycling. If you were a pro at that time, you were sought after. Trek being the bike of the US Postal Team also made it the bike to be on, and they made sure everyone knew it. A quiet reserved racer from British Columbia worked his way up the ranks with an attitude that many racers have. Race anything and everything that will prepare him for the big time. Coming out of the juniors into the U23 category, Green found strong footing to start his climb. Winning the Canadian National Championships, a strong performance in the U23 XC Worlds, and strong podiums at road races around the world led to the attention of GT. With cycling getting ready to shoot from the world of obscurity, into the mainstream. It was the perfect opportunity for Green. A focused strong performance in the Norba series in 99, led him to silver in the world championships in 2000, and a spot on the Olympics in Sydney. Then, the Lance train struck, and so did Roland Green. 2001 season showed Green's pure dominance. Winning the Norba XC series, and the UCI World Cup. Green had taken not just the overall victory, but consistent podium finishes and wins. This during a time that was seeing strong racers from both the old guard, Thomas Frieschnig, and powerful up and comers, Julian Absalon. Watching the racing at the time was intense. The field would split into groups who would hug each other's wheels. Until there would be a fierce attack Usually on the last lap of the race It was hard to know Who was going to take off Or who had the legs This all led to Green's first world championship The weekend after the dreadful attacks on 9-11 The race was in Durango, Colorado This would send critics into a frenzy Claiming that the competition wasn't there Because the strong Europeans Couldn't fly to the States horribly false claim that seems to be a common in the racing world because the podium looked like it does in every other world cup race and a claim that would be disproved the next year in 2002. Roland Green was a quiet racer, passionate and quiet. He was the shining example of pure talent. A quick rise to the top ranks of cross-country racing followed by a quick disappearance. The money that was in the sport was able to lift a reserved racer to the peak, something that would be nearly impossible today based on how much social media plays into a racer's marketing. At the time, could a racer be dropped from the racing scene in such a quick manner? Would we, the fans, let a racer disappear the way Roland Green did? As a privateer, you must make sure you adapt to different periods of racing. The introduction of enduro a few years back shifted the balance of cycling, making the few riders who have XC prowess and can descend more downhillers who are fit from being an admirable trait to dominating what a mountain biker is today. The modern BMX SuperTrack split the field of A-pros to elite racers, in a ferocious way. The large supercross courses required extreme dedication and usually forced pros to uproot their lives to live next to a track. Be on the lookout for racing that supports your strengths and enjoy the moment. The right time for you will come sooner than you think.